Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. Here we are with uh, Studio HFL. would like to welcome Bob White to the podcast. And Bob, my first question for you is, uh, what does the HFL stand for? Oh, boy. Uh, I could have looked this up. Um, hot for Larry. <laughs> you win. I, I don't okay. know. Uh, you know what? It doesn't matter what it ever stood for previously, but that's that's the winner right there. <laughs> uh, I assume Larry's the L, right? Uh, uh, no, it's higher, faster, louder. Oh, oh there you, you go. got to think like a trumpet player, but I, I, yeah. I think your answer beats all previous answers. Uh, you'll have <laughs> well, to listen. Think... You'll have to listen to some of the previous episodes to get some of the others. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I listened to a couple of them. I listened to I listened to Joey's. Um, yeah. I listened to one other one too, but now I'm blanking on what it was. But you know, I think if this interview will reveal one thing, it'll be that uh, I've always had difficulty thinking like a trumpet player, <laughs> and sometimes that's been helpful, and sometimes it's not so helpful. Well, if anything, I, I think thinking and trumpet uh, are, are are mutually exclusive, right? Yeah, and, yeah, probably. <laughs> if you if you're doing it right, yeah, yeah. So uh, you and I met, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm trying to think, it's been, I think maybe close to 20 years ago. Oh yeah, uh, probably you, around uh, 1999 or so, or so. Yeah, you were in school at uh, IU, is that right? Mm -hmm. That's right, I was in grad school at the time. And uh, either you were doing some studio work here in Indy or whatever it was, or we subbed together in a, in a little regional orchestra around here, but... Uh, mm -hmm. um, I, I will publicly say thank you. You actually got me into the Owensboro Symphony Orchestra. I subbed for you on a July 4th program in 2003. Oh. And uh, I'm now starting my 16th season there. I ended up auditioning and winning that job. Oh, that's uh, awesome. But, uh, you know, I owe you that because, you know, it's always who you know and the opportunities <laughs> but you know it's it's the opportunities that are created out of out of things like that and, yeah well, uh, you're you're principal there now right yeah 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 because i i was always only uh third i guess i don't know i don't even know if i was technically assistant oh, okay. principal but uh that must have meant that Rob and Jonathan both couldn't do that gig either if I was supposed to play lead. So <laughs> Yeah, I think uh Rob Rob Murray left uh right after that. Uh yep. and Jonathan Martin left uh year a year or two after that. Uh, right, right. Um so yeah, I've been principal uh the whole time I've been down there. Well but, in July uh, two thousand three, that would have been right after um I got the Charlotte gig. I, I think that audition was March of 2003. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. I probably was trying to pack up my apartment and move <laughs> on down to North Carolina. Yeah. Well, a little bit's happened between now and then, right? Yeah, a couple things. You a know. couple things. Well, okay. Yeah. So let's let's start with where you are right now. Why don't <laughs> Why don't you tell uh, tell us sure. where you are, what you're doing? Well, um, 
I'm Associate Professor of Trumpet at Western Michigan University, which is in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a large state school. Um, you know, Michigan, we have lots of big state schools. There's U of M, MSU, and then there's Western, Central, Eastern, Northern, <laughs> all these regional uh, mm-hmm. uh, state schools, too, that, you know, were once uh, teachers' colleges and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um but it's actually where I went to undergrad, oh, strangely no enough. Yeah, I did my undergrad here uh, 25 years ago in music ed. Uh, I actually double majored in performance and ed, but mm-hmm. my aspirations back then were mainly to become a high school band director. Um, and then um, while I was here um, studying with Scott Thornburg, uh, things started to come around in my playing enough that I thought, well, maybe I'll try grad school for performance. Mm-hmm. And um, then I went to IU before it was called the Jacobs School of Music. But, right. you know, that's what we call it now. <laughs> well, what was it called before that? Just the School of Music at Indiana University. Oh, okay. There's, there was yeah. no uh, secret uh, name, you know. No one, no one had given enough money to get their name <laughs> on the school at that point. But. Yeah. But yeah, it was still still a great place, and uh, I studied with Steve Burns and John Rommel mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. and I uh, also studied with Ed Cord, but in, informally I, I did it, you know, like during the summers and, you know, on the side I'd get lessons with Ed too. Right. And then with, when Marie Speziali came in to replace Steve Burns, um, I got to work with her a little bit too, so mm-hmm. lots, of, uh, lots of great trumpet stuff going on at Indiana. Mm-hmm. And that was your master's? Well, I did my master's there, and then I did my doctorate there, too. It took a lot longer to finish the doctorate because um, I, I did manage to actually get a gig uh, before I was done. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I sort of <laughs> I sort of went off to Charlotte thinking, you know, bye-bye, doctorate. You know, I'll, <laughs> I'll, th- I'll think of you later. But right. I had finished the coursework, so I just had to do exams and recitals sure. and write a dissertation. Yeah, that's all. Uh, yeah. But in the interim, strangely enough, I I started um, having a long distance relationship with uh, my significant other, who uh, couldn't move to North Carolina for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, well, you know, maybe I should wrap this doctorate up just in case mm-hmm. something academic opens up down the line. And um, we managed to. Uh, have a baby uh, somewhere in the midst of all that too. So yeah. then I, I really had to get back to Michigan after that. So luckily I wrapped up the doctorate in 2007, uh, at, you know, many years after I started it. And um, I did a one year teaching spot at Bowling Green state in uh, Bowling Green, Ohio, mm-hmm. um, taking a leave from the Charlotte symphony to do that. And then went back to the symphony for a year and then uh, that's when our baby was on the way. So I had to move, uh, resign from that job and move mm-hmm. back to Michigan. And then um, a few years later, after my son was born, uh, I was fortunate enough for this teaching position at my alma mater to open up. And um, I sent in my materials and, you know, there was a national uh, interview process and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I was fortunate to get it on the other side. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been pretty great, you know. It's uh, kind of surreal in a way, but it's pretty awesome. Great place to work. So. Yeah. Um, the Charlotte job, you know, I, mm-hmm. I when I was working with you, uh, I mean, I really thought, you know, you were going to be the orchestra guy. That seemed to be your focus. You were going to mm-hmm. be doing the orchestra thing forever and ever. Um, and you know, of course, now you are the professor. Um, do you miss or the, uh, getting to set in an orchestra or do you still get that opportunity to set in an orchestra? Yeah, I do it a lot. Um, you know, when I moved back to Michigan, uh, it it was a little weird because yeah, you know, you, um, you know, you do all these auditions and, you know, I'd gotten pretty close for a few big things and I kind of thought, well, if I keep going, you know, maybe eventually I'll move on from Charlotte to something, you know, uh, shinier. Um, (laughs) but when I moved back to Michigan, I was really lucky. Um, you know, most of my time, especially the first couple of years I was back, I was focused on, 
on my son and, you know, kind of, uh, spending a lot of time with him. Um, but I, I did get out and play for, uh, the guys in the Grand Rapids symphony mm -hmm. and the members of the trumpet section in the Detroit symphony. Mm -hmm. And little by little, they started plugging me into things as they were able. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's a, that's a tricky process because you have to, you know, people are always welcoming in terms of if they have the time and, uh, you know, if, if they have time to hear you play, they're usually pretty generous about that, but you kind of have to sit and wait for them to plug you in if, if that's what they're going to do. Sure. Um, I, <laughs> I've known some people since who've, sort of thought that, oh, well, you go play for the people in this orchestra and they put you on the sub list, right? Uh, and it's like, well, maybe, but, you know, that doesn't mean you're jumping to the front of the line. Right. You know, you got you to wait. And right. just, I think that as a freelancer, you try to find these opportunities, but a lot of it involves sitting and waiting. Mm -hmm. um, same thing, you know, even when I lived in Indiana, um, I was lucky enough to get to play with people like Bob Wood and Alan Miller uh, in the studio a lot. Mm -hmm. And so eventually even Chappie would play studio dates once in a while. Um, eventually they, you know, they felt comfortable enough to throw me some things when they mm -hmm. came up. So um, if you're patient, sometimes those things work out great. But if you, if you press the issue, <laughs> usually they, they put you farther down the list. So I'm glad that I, I learned that lesson early on to not, not press it. Yeah. You know, um, there's uh there's a good lesson I think for a lot of people is there's, there's a difference between being persistent and mm -hmm. obnoxious, right? Yeah. You know, it's, for sure. you know, yep. and, and it's the same with showing up at gigs. There's a difference between uh, uh, you know, that, that, handshake and that uh that constant hovering over somebody like when are you going to hire me when are you going to hire me yeah and, yeah and and uh dan galando i don't know if you remember dan you know oh of course yeah a personnel manager with uh the indianapolis uh, chamber orchestra sure uh, yep. he and i have conversations all the time about uh when i may have to edit this part out but you know uh we, we talk often about uh, those people that are just constantly hounding us for, uh, for when are you <laughs> yeah. going to call me again? Right. And, right. you know, it, it's a fine line. And I think there's a, there are a lot of people and people are hungry for work. You know, there's one thing Absolutely. to get out there and, and, uh, and market yourself. Uh, but there's a tactful way to do it. Yes. Um, and I think the best way to do it always is of course, let your playing speak for yourself. Well, that's definitely true. That's absolutely true. And it's, it's great advice, I think, for young players. Um, it, it is a, it's a different environment now than when you and I were coming up. I mean, boy, that makes us sound really old, Bob. I mean, well, that's, it, you know, it, it was a fast, it was a fast change, you know? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, it, I think people were still obnoxious sometimes when we were, you know, coming up, but I think now it gets conflated with the idea of having a presence, having a brand. God, I hate that mm. term, yeah. you know, but <laughs> you know, this sort of corporate mindset has seeped into so many things that, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, students are, are understandably confused sometimes and they don't, you know, they don't mean any harm by it, I'm sure. But, you know, they need to learn that, you know, being the squeaky wheel when you're dealing with old timers like us, especially uh, sometimes uh, makes it less likely that you're going to get the grease than more. Um, so anyway, though, to go back to what you asked me a minute ago, <laughs> I was really fortunate that Detroit and Grand Rapids and yes, a few other uh, orchestras in Michigan, there's a ton of orchestras in Michigan. Oh, yeah. Um, they would throw me some stuff. And, um, as time went on, I got busier and busier, uh, playing with those groups and, and also chamber music with members of those orchestras. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, there's a group in Detroit called the Detroit chamber winds and strings that I got affiliated with early on. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm lucky enough to actually play with them and uh, serve as kind of an artistic advisor with them too, as far as their programming each year now. Um, so that that gave me lots of opportunities to play, and um, somewhere along the line, there Detroit had an audition for principal after Ramon Parcells retired. Mm -hmm. And even though I 
uh, I didn't win the audition. Uh, this particular audition, there was no winner. Uh, they no, this started was before the, Hunter won the job. Yes, right? yeah. It was one audition prior to the one that Hunter won. Okay. Um, uh, needless to say, though, the principal had retired, so <laughs> they, they needed they needed uh, an extra person. So Steve Anderson moved up to acting principal that year, and they started throwing me a lot more work, too. Nice. So for a while there, I, I was getting to play with Detroit a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, things go the way they go. Um, you know, the relationship I was in, uh, she and I decided we weren't going to stay together anymore, so I had to... I had to move to a, a full-time income household. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't do the freelancing thing on my own. And right. fortunately, uh, this academic position opened up at the same time. And, mm -hmm. you know, as far as the, the stars aligning the way you need them to, uh, it really couldn't have worked out any better for me than it did. Um, it was really something. I mean, I, I still am kind of in shock to think about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I tell my students to, in no way should they follow my example as far as how to <laughs> how to do a career because it's just been one one lucky thing after another you know well you know you say lucky but really uh, what's that definition luck is really just uh prep when preparation meets opportunity <laughs> well that's a good one and and i i get that i mean I, I think i was prepared in a lot of ways but it's still a lot of luck <laughs> I mean, you know, I know people who are in similar situations who haven't had yeah. the same kind of good luck. And, yeah. you know, it, it keeps you, uh, it, it keeps some humility in the, in the, in the process. Mm -hmm. um, so how long have you been there? Uh, I just am about to begin my sixth year at Western. And have um, you, are you tenured at this point? I am. I Congratulations. It just happened a couple months ago. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh, that's I fantastic, really appreciate it. <laughs> That's a That's a big it's deal. Sure, well, it sure feels good. I mean, you know, in an orchestra job, you get tenured usually somewhere in the second year you're mm -hmm. there, um, which is relatively fast compared to academia where you have to go through a series of <laughs> trials. Mm -hmm. Um but I've been really fortunate. I mean, Western is uh, an incredibly special school of music. Um, mm -hmm. My colleagues are incredibly supportive mm -hmm. and uh, encouraging and helpful. Mm -hmm. And the whole time I've felt like I've known exactly uh, what to do mm -hmm. uh, with each, each review, you know, right. how to put my materials together and uh, what things to to highlight mm -hmm. and what things are maybe not as impressive. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, you know, because when I started, um, one of the things that was pointed out to me was that for a school that is trying to enlarge its scope uh, nationally and globally, mm -hmm. um, subbing with the Detroit Symphony, say, is maybe not as impressive to an engineering professor <laughs> as doing a recital at, you know, the University of Kentucky or something like no that. No kidding. Yeah. And I mean, that's not the whole story, of course. And part of it has to do with how you, how you present the materials, you know, you have to do a little educating sometimes <laughs> to let people know that, you know, the DSO is a world-class orchestra, you mm -hmm. know, and mm -hmm. if they, sometimes they've had me in as a guest, uh, a substitute principal, you know, or mm -hmm. something like that, or did a recording or something. And you have to know like how to, how to spell these things out in such a way that anyone reading your materials, even if they have nothing to do with your field or no understanding of your field can read them and, and see that uh, the work you're doing is of a scope that's uh, worthy of tenure, you know? Sure. sure. Um, it's a, it's a tricky process, but again, I, I've been so lucky. People have just shown me how to do everything mm -hmm. um, and help me, help me figure it out. So when you got there, um, Scott was still there on faculty, yeah, he's, right? He's, he still is. Yeah, we play together in the Western Brass Quintet. It's mm -hmm. one of the only one of the only universities in the country that still has a faculty brass quintet that's uh, you know not uh, staffed partially with graduate students. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm no, just but that is still pretty unique. Yeah, it's rare that there's two full-time trumpet teachers, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I'm, some people could rightly look at it as a, a bit of a luxury. But you know, we have a big school. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, our, between the two of us, we have 25 uh, trumpet majors. So it's, Holy cow. there's a lot, <laughs> lot going on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you die? How do you divide those up? Do you uh, take undergrads or, or grads? Or? Well, our whole program is, is really focused on the undergrad experience. Um, the only master's degrees that the school of music at Western offers are, um, well, it, it offers master's degrees in performance and composition and music mm-hmm. education and things like that, but no doctoral program. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with Michigan State and U of M, uh, there's <laughs> hardly a need for us to have a doctorate in music. Although, I, you know, in the future, maybe it'll maybe it'll happen. Um, but aren't those football schools? <laughs> they are football schools. <laughs> they have music uh, programs over there. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's, uh, <laughs> those fighting words. I know I'm going to get some get some calls on that. <laughs> well, you know, it's another it, another cool thing about being in Michigan is that um, you know, even though there are so many schools, we get along really well. Like <clears throat> oh, Justin yeah. Emmert, who teaches at Michigan State, is one of my really good friends. We've been we've known each other for a long time. Um, Neil Mueller at Central Michigan is also someone I'm very close to personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know Bill Campbell at Michigan very well, but every interaction I've had with him has been incredibly cordial and supportive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, the U of M School of Music is, you know, that's been legendary for decades. Sure. Um, you know, not to mention great teachers at, at Central and Eastern. I, I did mention Central, but yeah, <laughs> Eastern and right, Northern right. And, and all the other schools in Michigan, Grand Valley State. Um, so lots of great stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And everyone's really supportive of each other. Mm-hmm. So it's a so nice environment. With your uh, faculty quintet, uh, you guys do a lot of touring or recitaling? Well, we try to do both. Um, you know, it's... Uh, it's a pretty, I would call it a pretty hardcore quintet. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we're not doing a lot of Canadian brass transcriptions, you mm-hmm. know, no offense to to those that do. Um, but we're interested in playing original music for quintet. Mm-hmm. Um, most of it, of course, is contemporary, but uh, we some transcriptions of early music uh, kind of along the lines of the American brass quintet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Renaissance music and Baroque music and things like that. Yeah. Our trombonist uh, Dan, Dan Matson has done a lot of arranging of Monteverdi, which has been a big deal for us. Um, but yeah, we do really hard music. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you, you know, I, I thought I had some chops when I got here, but the first <laughs> quintet recital I played, I was just sort of like, my God, that was a challenge I wasn't used to. So, um, well, well, okay. So what was the challenge? Well, it's a different kind of endurance. It's a different kind of uh, expressiveness. It's a different kind of, um, I mean, everything about it is different. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know if you know the Axiom Brass Quintet in Chicago. Yes. It's a pro- professional group. They're not mm-hmm. affiliated with the university. But Dorval Puccini, uh, the leader of that group, is someone I've known for a while because he and I both have played in Grand Rapids together. And Dorval, you know, has kept in touch with me over the years when he was forming the quintet and things like that. And mm-hmm. he invited me to write an article uh, for his publication, Brass Legacy, when I got the job here, talking about changing from <clears throat> being sort of focused on orchestral playing to playing in a quintet primarily. And it gave me a chance to kind of sit down and think about, well, how how has my playing changed? You know, what what is different now? Mm-hmm. And I think the first thing that is really noticeable is, like I said, endurance. Um, the kind of endurance that is required in an orchestra setting is typically incredibly intense for very short periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even, even a big blow, like the end of... Uh, uh, Chike five or Shostakovich five or something like that. Right. It's a relatively short period of time when you compare it to, you know, a 90 minute brass quintet recital. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole kind of marathon versus a sprint thing comes into play. Sure. You, ha- you have to learn how to sort of operate continually for a longer period mm-hmm. without spending it all, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and that involves developing a sound that has more, um, 
easier access to the softest dynamics. Um, one that you never let get spread or out, <laughs> you know, you, sh you shouldn't do that in the orchestra anyway, but it's easier to get away with it in the orchestra. You know, I mean, people, people, you know, can come back from a couple weeks off on vacation or something sometimes and get through a, a typical orchestra concert. <laughs> right. Not, not, not so with a quintet. That's right. just not going to happen. <laughs> At least not, not for me anyway. Right. <clears throat> um, and, you know, expressively, it's different, too. It's a lot more like, I, I imagine it's similar to what an actor goes through if, if they're doing work in the theater and then work on screen, film or television. I don't mean to sound pretentious with that, like I'm, you know, some kind of Lawrence oh, no, Olivier no, or something. A, not at all. But I, <laughs> I just think it's a kind of an interesting corollary that, you know, if you think about what's required of a theater actor to project and have have presence of their whole body, mm -hmm. their whole presence on stage is a, it's taking up space and it's using the space and it's, uh, you know, you have to have a voice that resonates in the hall and projects even when you're, uh, you know, doing something small scale. Whereas on uh screen, you know, the camera can get right up in your face. And um, when there's only five people on stage and you have a good acoustic in the hall you're playing in, you know, the audience can hear a pin drop. So mm -hmm. you can, you can play at that level dynamically and right. still have it communicate something. Mm -hmm. um, that, that took some getting used to, you know, I mean, I, I had good teachers all the way through and they all emphasized how important soft playing was. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, like most students, I was nodding my head. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Soft playing. Yep. Right. And then I would continue to blast my way through excerpts <laughs> most of the day. Um, yeah. So when you have to put a recital program together that's really challenging, mostly contemporary brass quintet music, um, you you have to figure it out. So it becomes part of your practice, you know, sure. playing playing as soft as I possibly can uh, every day, you know, and uh, you know, connecting that with everything else I'm trying to do. Right. So you know. Um... Caleb Ketchum, a trombone player who is finishing mm -hmm. his doctorate down at IU. He's a, mm -hmm. a member of my brass quintet and uh, also a sackbutt player and part of, oh, the, wow. part of the period uh, uh, early music group down, sure. down there and right. super smart uh, musician. Mm -hmm. And of course, every brass quintet plays the Gabrielli Canzonas, right? Canzona Personari, number one, two, three, four. Sure. And number two, I think, is probably one of the most famous. And mm -hmm. so we're we're playing through that. And knowing that Caleb <laughs> is savvy to uh, early music practice, I asked him, I said, hey, are are we playing this the right way? He goes, well... <laughs> you know <laughs> you know <laughs> so you know the way that every brass quintet including the way i've played it over the last however many years yeah you know it's like we've we've swung a sledgehammer at this thing uh <laughs> right yeah you got it yeah you you know exactly what i was getting at and so the way he's talking about how we cadence things and uh, it, it, totally different, you know? So yeah. it, it, now <laughs> I, I can't say that we were successful in, in making everything the way it should be. Um, but you mm -hmm. know, even that little bit of information, um, now I'm looking at that piece thinking, boy, if we really got serious about this, we could, uh, well, and we probably should, uh, get serious about that, you know, uh, instead of just playing it like, every other piece. If we really want to play it the way Gabrielli uh, should be played, we probably should sit down and, and nuance the heck out of it, you know? Uh, yeah. It's so interesting, you know, that, I, I mean, you know, musical notation is pretty precise for what it is. You know, I mean, it tells us a lot and especially the closer we get to our own time, there's more and more instructions typically um, but you go back that far and, you know, you really do have to sort of imagine a lot of it. And, uh, <laughs> people that, are, you know, have taken the time to learn instruments from that period. There's so many insights that come out of that kind of study mm -hmm. th that are almost 
you, you almost don't even verbally, you couldn't even put into words what some of those insights are. I think, mm-hmm. I think things just kind of innately come out that, you know, don't necessarily square mm-hmm. with our accepted uh, traditions <laughs> of trumpet playing in a lot of ways. Well, it's interesting you say that too. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, oh Chris Hasselbring and Brass for Beginners. This uh, he is. Oh, sure. Yeah, I've seen those. The natural trumpets. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's pretty cool what he's done. In fact, uh, one of the one of the fellows in the Metropolitan Opera actually won an audition playing one of those. Uh, one of those brass uh, instruments that he's, he's created. Yeah. Oh, that's um, cool. It's, I mean, they're functional that, you know, yeah. they're, they're not just a, some cheap knockoff. They're, they're really fine instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got one and what it has done to inform my own playing uh, regarding Brahms and Beethoven and yeah. other things. It's like, Oh my gosh. So that's the sound. That's the tonality. That's the timbre. Yeah. You know, and uh, that's the articulation <laughs> that I should be using. Uh, yeah. You know, that's uh, not just a notation. You know, now you've got the right instrument in your hands uh, to actually uh, to create uh, the the kind of music that, that should be created for that. And, it really uh, is something, yeah. You know, and, and of course, I'm driving my wife nuts. Uh, she can't stand the natural trumpet sound. She's like, why are you doing that? What? <laughs> You know, it's like, you know, God created uh, pistons and tuning slides, you know, use them, you know, that, that, that partial is out of, you know, that, that F at the top of the staff is like, it's so freaking out of tune, uh, you know, on the natural trumpet, but uh, anyways, Yeah. yeah, that's hilarious. Welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more. And their customer service is excellent. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And now, back to the interview. You know, that reminds me of something funny. You know, there are some orchestras uh, in Europe that have actually started using uh, valveless trumpets for Mm -hmm. certain repertoire. Mm -hmm. Um, I think maybe the Concertgebouw does it, but I'm not sure. But a few, you know, Chamber Orchestra of Europe, they did a famous cycle of Beethoven symphony recordings mm-hmm. uh, with Nicholas Harnoncourt back in the 90s that had valveless trumpets and horns. Uh, at least that's what the program notes said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't really tell listening. I mean, it was a cool sound listening to it, but they're yeah. so accurate and so clean that, yeah. um, you know, but... I remember, um, well, two things. One, when I was at Indiana, um, I took brass literature with the great Richard Serafinoff, oh, uh, yeah. who, who, of course, is a Baroque horn specialist, and he right. builds instruments, and he does a seminar in the summer on how to build valveless trumpets and I stuff. did and, that. I, I took that Oh, cool. Yeah. That's amazing. That, I, that might be a sabbatical project for me in the future or something like that. That would be neat to do. But um, he programmed a piece for us to play on a, I think it was, you know, a Collegium Musicum concert or something that it was by Mozart, Wolfgang Mozart. Mm -hmm. And it involved, I think, four trumpets in C, Mm -hmm. two trumpets in D, two flutes, (laughs) and timpani. (laughs) Okay. And so by using the combination of C and D trumpets simultaneously, he had more, uh, you know, dominant and secondary dominant chords at his disposal to use harmonically. But it was hilarious because, you know, out of the six of us trumpet players that he recruited to do this, (laughs) we're all grad students, but you would not know that to hear us play <laughs> the natural trumpets. You and half of our rehearsals were just we dissolve into fits of laughter because it was just so horrible. Sure. And and these two these poor flute players, like, you know, who are just trying to play these beautiful phrases mm-hmm. and hear these mm-hmm. six jackasses, you know, just like <laughs> oh my God, it was so funny. No, but the other thing I remembered was at one point, 
the Indianapolis Symphony hired a new music director. It's not the person that's there now, but mm -hmm. one of the previous people. Mm -hmm. And this person was European, and he had this notion that he wanted to use natural trumpets for you know, Baroque and classical pieces. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I wasn't in the symphony at this time, but I would hear the chattering among members of the orchestra mm -hmm. who were talking about this in recording sessions and mm -hmm. stuff. And they, <laughs> in order to agree to do that, they had worked out something pretty slick in the contract. Like it, it would count for two doubles and, mm -hmm. you know, they had to have time to like, you know, prepare they had to be compensated for instruction on the instrument maybe yep. or something like yep. I mean, yep. it was pretty amazing and so the upshot of it was they never did it like you know i think the orchestra was just like well that's too expensive so we're not we're not gonna ever do that <laughs> well now it's it's funny you say that because uh christoph uh urbanski actually um they did use natural trumpets oh, this past wow. year i think uh, uh, a semi-staged production of uh, some mozart uh, I see. piece and uh, uh, I forget who was playing, but they did use two natural trumpets. Okay. Um, yeah. But then uh, I was talking to a member of the horn section who shall name remain unnamed, but uh, <laughs> he was saying, you know, they want to start with the trumpets and then they want to integrate natural horns. But he said, look, uh, they want to actually put it in the contract that we were hired as valved instrument players. Uh, mm -hmm. You cannot judge us on our performance on natural Answers. Uh, um, well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, that's the thing is that, you know, conductors often as contracts, you know, develop in this contemporary day and age, there's often more leeway granted to put people up for review, mm -hmm, you know, even, mm -hmm. even tenured musicians sometimes are finding themselves up for artistic review for mm -hmm. things that are kind of coming out of the blue. I'm not saying that that's what's happening in Indianapolis yeah. specifically. I'm just saying generally you see oh, yeah. that happen. Yeah. And so I think that horn player, I probably know exactly who it is, is being very savvy about, you know, making sure that there's no, no gray area. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, no flexible interpretations, yeah. you know, because yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not, it's not something we learn how to do usually well, until like, af after the fact. Well, you hired me to uh, to climb a ladder, and now you're asking me to walk a tightrope. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, it's it's two very different. That's things, an interesting right? analogy. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so I'm curious uh, with uh, Serafinov and and the trumpets yeah. he had you use. Uh, when I did <laughs> that, it was a week long workshop. Uh, Bob Barclay and uh, Rick Serafinov. You know, we, mm -hmm. we spent a week mm -hmm. making these uh, these natural trumpets. Yep. Um, and it was called the two hole method, you know, yep. one where the mouthpiece goes and the sound comes out the, those were the two holes. Yep. There were, there were yep. no vents, right? Yep. Right. Uh, is that what you used? No, we, he had vented examples for uh, us okay. to use. Um, I think those of us that were on the C parts had pretty rudimentary parts, mm -hmm. you know, maybe we would play CDE or, you know, C, D, E, F, E, D, C, something like that, maybe. Right, right. But the D trumpet parts were much more intricate. And yeah. so like like Richard Sandals, who's principal in the Canadian uh, Ballet Orchestra now, mm -hmm. um, he had some experience on the natural trumpet, so he played one of the D parts. Mm -hmm. And he had he had he might have even had his own, I can't remember, but he had the full system of, of vent holes. Mm -hmm. So so we did we did use those. We weren't complete savages. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we uh boy oh boy some of those rehearsals were really rough sure. and you know there was there was this mix of finding it hilarious and then also being like you know how are we going to pull this off like <laughs> cuz you know i i mean even acoustically it was strange you know like if if one person fracks, then like suddenly everybody's fracking, you know, like it just sort of, it, you know, the, uh, the way the instruments sort of mess with each other was right. more complicated right. than we were used to also. Well, so it sure gives you an appreciation for, uh, for those players back in the day. Right. Oh my God. It's crazy. I mean, no wonder they had their own guilds and, you know, mm -hmm. could have you, sentenced to death if you played the trumpet <laughs> illegally or whatever the heck else they did right you know i mean it 
it really is a, a skilled trade, mm-hmm. and uh, you can see why they would be both proud of it and really secretive about it too. Right. You know, right? So mm-hmm. that's funny. So, based on this uh, today's conversation, are you are you uh, are you going to go and start your own natural trumpet ensemble now at uh, at your school? <laughs> well, I've got tenure now, so what do I have to lose? Right? <laughs> so, do you have a trumpet ensemble at your school? Um, not formally. Um, the you know we focus a lot on chamber music at western mm-hmm. um you know i mentioned before that the focus is really on undergrads um mm-hmm. we, we usually have two graduate assistants in trumpet and that's usually it for master students so mm-hmm. the rest are undergrads and so often the people playing the top positions in our ensembles are undergrads yeah um and you know we have some strong players um but the Focus has been mainly on brass quintet for chamber music. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the Western brass quintet being there. You know, that, that, that as an institution is over mm-hmm. 50 years old now. And, um, <clears throat> we, you know, we have kind of an ongoing, uh, almost like a seminar, if you will, for brass quintet. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a graduate honors quintet. There's an undergraduate honors quintet and then several others around that. Mm -hmm. And most of our coaching has been focused on that literature. I do have a a bunch of students this year who want to do an ensemble. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they're just competitive by nature and they want to go to NTC and see if they can win a prize or something. But, um, you know, it'll be, if we do it, it'll be kind of off the books, you know, I'll I'll have to volunteer time to coach it and, you know, they won't do it for credit, but I think it's worth exploring. Um, you know, before I started at Western, I taught adjunct at Grand Valley State for a couple of years. Right. And um, the trumpet ensemble tradition there was pretty big. Um, you know, they had a lot of groups winning NTC. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of neat to get to sit in and see how that happened, you know, mm-hmm. like how the groups rehearsed, how they dealt with each other, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It was eye opening. So. Mm-hmm. But I will say that I, I just think the literature for trumpet ensemble, quite frankly, um, is just not very good. Um, it's getting you know, better. It, I, I agree. I absolutely agree. It is, it is getting better. It seems mm-hmm. like there's an awful lot of drum core kind of yes. stuff out there. That's absolutely. Just kind of, you know. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, there are pieces by, especially by Tony Plogue. There's two in particular that I think are very, very good pieces. Um, and worth study by any trumpet player. Um, and, you know, there's other examples, too, of very good pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll be quite honest, a lot of the stuff that uh, even gets passed off as quote-unquote good trumpet ensemble pieces, I listen to and I just kind of think, you know, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. I will say my friend Jason Double teaches at University of Kentucky. Yeah. Um, I will say he is definitely an exception to this. Uh, he's written some very interesting and yeah. creative pieces for trumpet ensemble. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if we can get more composers to do what he and Tony Plog are doing, mm-hmm. then maybe some good things will come out of it. But it's tricky. I mean, quite honestly, even a brass quintet, um, when you do a full <coughs> recital, a full recital of brass quintet music can get pretty tiring for the audience. Um you really have to get a lot of different colors to keep the audience's ears interested. You know? I, I formed this trumpet ensemble at the University of Indianapolis, oh, I don't know, six, seven years ago. Uh-huh. And, you know, I was all gung-ho about it. And, man, the first couple of rehearsals, I'm like, man, my ears are killing me. Oh, God. You know, yeah. and uh, – that was an unfortunate opportunity. I heard a trombone ensemble. Well, no, 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 hang on. Let let me rephrase that. Um, I heard a trombone ensemble at a funeral. That was the unfortunate opportunity that it it was at a funeral. That's the best place to hear a trombone ensemble. Well, hang on. But I was actually impressed. The the colors of the trombone (laughs) ensemble were gorgeous. And they didn't didn't hurt my ears. Absolutely. And, you know, I I, a kid, but the trombone choir has been a viable thing musically for a long time. And, you know, I could listen to that for much longer than I could a trombone ensemble. But, you know, (laughs) I I guess the way I said that was 
well, maybe that was a Freudian uh, slip the way I I'm said just, that. I, I, I loved, I always poke fun at my trombone playing friends, yeah. you know, like whenever I see an article that says, you know, 19 year old wins principal trombone of the London symphony or whatever, right. You know, they share this on social media and my comment is always, well, further proof that trombone is the easiest instrument. <laughs> 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 wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I don't even just, know how to I don't even know how just to a little comment friendly on shade. that. That's just a that's, little friendly shade. That's all. Wow. Do they yeah. have affirmative action over there too? You know, I guess that's part yeah. of the Trump, right? Trombone choirs though, though they do sound beautiful. It is they a, do. It's very choral sound, yeah. you know, it's beautiful. Well, and, you know, you know, trumpet at its best can sound that that good. Trumpet ensemble at its best can sound like that. Yeah. But, yeah. Now I, I will say the whole chamber music aspect of it though, that's, that's one thing I think, uh, you know, I think going to big schools and being part of the large ensembles is great, but getting the chamber music experience, uh, that's really where I think musicianship is best developed because yeah. of the individual responsibility, the ability yep. to communicate with others in that small ensemble setting, uh, you know, that's where ideas are developed and, you know, it's irreplaceable. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like it. Yeah. And I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, I played in quintets all through college and even after college did a lot of, uh, professional chamber music playing, mm-hmm. not, you know, gig quintets, of course, but, um, you know, like actual quintet concerts and things, mm-hmm. but it, it still didn't really set me up for what, playing in a group like the WBQ was going to be like. Um, and I, since then, after doing a few years of getting recital programs together with them, and we did a recording, we're editing that now, it should come out later this this year. Um, after doing all that, I, I tell you, I have yet to go into an orchestra gig where I feel nervous anymore. Like, <laughs> no I'm not. I'm not saying that the orchestra thing is easier. It's its own set of difficulties. Sure. But you know, if if you know how to listen, if you know how to play <laughs> with, you know, uh-huh. it, I mean, there's just so much of it that seemed difficult before. It doesn't seem like a big deal anymore. Wow. You know. <laughs> so I I think you know students. If they're lucky enough to go to a school that has a symphony orchestra, great. If all there is is bands and wind ensembles, that's fine. But if they're not playing chamber music, like like the whole time, (laughs) not just a year, and not just a pickup group to do Debankle Sanger Leader at the mall at Christmas or something, like an actual musical performing group, then they're missing out. I mean, and teachers too. I mean, coaching those groups that really puts you on the spot as a teacher, yeah. you know? Well, you know, you know what's, I think what's really encouraging too, I mean, you go on YouTube and you mm-hmm. see like these bass clarinet octets, which first of all, <laughs> that should be illegal. But you, you must, you must look for different YouTube, okay, you must well, search different things than I do. I, but. I made that up, but you know, I mean, you, you, <laughs> there's, there's, but you know what I mean? You find all these really eclectic groups that sure, are on sure, there sure. and uh, all kinds of combinations and doing all kinds of music, original and transcriptions and, and arrangements. And I think there's no excuse uh, to say, well, I don't know what to play. I don't know what to do. I can't find a group, nobody to play with. And, and then you look at, uh, uh, what's the, the trombone guy, Bill, Christopher Bill, you know, who's out there doing, you know, 24 part Bohemian Rhapsody and, and oh, plays yeah, all 24 parts, you know, yep. and, and I'm thinking there is no excuse, uh, to not create something and to, yeah. you know, whether it's one, two or however many people and there's, mm-hmm. and with technology, man, there's, there's truly no excuse uh, not to be doing something. Uh, well, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the one thing I would say about that is that I, I have seen examples of that, of people doing it <laughs> just by themselves. Like they do many, many parts by themselves and that's really cool and it's a neat exercise and i'm sure there's lots of insights gleaned from doing it but there's something about the the variability of other people being involved you know it's less predictable oh yeah (laughs) but also you know it requires more it requires more listening 
um, requires deeper listening. Um, and, you know, especially in the brass quintet, the way that that group can balance and voice things, mm -hmm. uh, the way you adjust voicings, uh, you know, nothing is sort of, you can't just follow the instructions and have it come out right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to actually get a sense for what it sounds like. Um, and that, it, you know, for, for a teacher, especially being able to kind of guide that and coach that, um, man, you learn a lot. It, it's really something, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, if you're out there, if you teach at a school and your kids aren't doing brass quintet all the time, <laughs> you should do that. <laughs> so, um, Let's see. I was going to ask you about, oh, Brass Band of Battle Creek. You ever get down there to play <laughs> with uh, any of those guys? I do. I, I've been lucky enough. Um, since I moved to Kalamazoo, uh, I've been playing with them at first as a sub. You know, I'd pop in when someone was couldn't make it or whatever. And um, sad to say, since my colleague and predecessor at Western, Stephen Jones, passed away. Um, yeah, I'm I've very sorry about sort that. Of yeah, it was a big loss. We all missed Steve. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was just boy. this past year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a year ago in April. Mm -hmm. And it was sudden uh, and kind of unexpected. So, uh, And when he went out, he went out playing as well as I've ever heard him play. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he was great, great trumpet player and great musician, incredibly smart person. Mm -hmm. He was sort of my unofficial mentor when I got here because – Anytime I didn't understand something about how the university operated, I'd just call him mm -hmm. and he, he just explained it all very matter of factly for me. <laughs> it was great. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So we miss Steve a lot. Um, but he, he was playing in the solo cornet row and I was starting to sub in, in the back row. Mm -hmm. And about a year before he died, he, he had the idea that he didn't want to play in the solo row anymore. I'm not sure why he sounded great, but he decided he was more comfortable playing in the back. So uh, he told them to have me flip flop with him. So I started playing oh, no kidding. in the front, usually right next to Scott Thornburg. So, <laughs> you know, usually it's me, Scott, Rich Kelly, and Chris uh, Jowd is in the front row. Holy and cow. it's keeping up with those guys will make you sweat. <laughs> they sound amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard so many great things about Rich Kelly. Of course, you know, he's played everywhere and with everybody. He's a genius. Like. He's, yeah. a genius. Yeah. he's like Stevie Wonder level yeah. musical genius. Well, I he's, mean, he's another one I want to get to interview at some point. Uh, I just think uh, what a great uh, variety of experiences that he's had. It's amazing how good he is and how yeah. smart he is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great guy. Yeah. I love Rich. So, well, um, before we wrap up here, any little tidbits of uh, <laughs> things or one giant uh, bit of information you'd like to share with anybody? Or Oh, my gosh. I don't know. Um, you know, in thinking about this before, uh, you know, like yesterday when I was thinking, like, oh, what are we going to talk about? I, the one thought that came to mind was how <laughs> I, I can't advise my students to do anything in the way I did it. <laughs> I think that you know, being smart and being judicious about, you know, how you structure your life mm -hmm. is, is really time well spent, it, it, but it's also difficult. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact is life is unpredictable. And I think the, the greatest piece of advice I ever got was from Mr. Adam, um, you know, who's still alive when I was at IU. Mm -hmm. I, I had very limited contact with him, but a little bit of contact with mm -hmm. him, which was very, very great. And his thing, he'd say it to everybody, but it was definitely true, was you got to get your priorities straight, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, your family comes first and then your friends, the people you care about. And, you know, somewhere down the line after that is your career. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't remember if he put it to me this way or if John Rommel did, but at one point someone literally asked the question, what would you do if you couldn't play trumpet anymore? Oh. And, you know, that I remember, you know, it seems sort of, it seems sort of like, duh, you know, like I'm not, I'm not 
married to my trumpet, man. I'm not, you know, <laughs> it's not the way I identify myself, man. Right. But when I had to really think about it, I was like, geez, what would I do? <laughs> it it kind of made me panic. And, you know, for like several days, like, holy crap, what am I going to do? If, you know, mm-hmm. what if I have focal dystonia someday or something? But, you know, the the lesson that comes out of it is not so much the concrete answer of here's what I would do if I couldn't play trumpet anymore. It's just considering the fact that this isn't all that important, you know, like when you miss a note, nobody dies, you know, <laughs> if you wow, make a mistake, right? it's right. not like the world stops turning <laughs> and that little bit of perspective or, or, you know, to blow it out a little bit, if you don't win an audition, it's not like your face goes in on Facebook the next day with mm-hmm. the word loser underneath it. You know, right. it, you just go on to the next thing until mm-hmm. eventually you find success in what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, that's a tough one. And, and I think it's tougher now than when we were young because, this is a cliche, but the the picture we put up on social media usually is all the awesome things that are happening to us. And you look at people's feeds sometimes if you're a young, impressionable student, mm-hmm. and you could get the sense that, geez, everyone else is good at this, and I'm not, you know? Can you and, imagine? Can you imagine if people actually posted what they were really feeling like? Oh, my God. Yeah, it would be depressing. (laughs) Nobody would spend any time on Facebook, right? Probably not. They'd be like, geez, what do I, I can, I can do this myself. But, (laughs) you know, that's the thing is that it, it, it really is a distorted view of, of what it's really like. And, and I remember feeling that way, you know, I mean, there are heroes out there in the trumpet world that you get the sense like, geez, they're just kind of good at everything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the longer you go. You start to learn firsthand or secondhand that no, it's it's hard for everybody. Well, you know, you know, I talked to Ryan Anthony a couple of weeks ago. Oh in, wow! In an interview and talk about, uh, you know, we we talked about what he's posted on Facebook, mm. and he's posted the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, man, oh man, what he's endured. In fact, I'm posting his interview this afternoon. Uh, oh wow! Uh, very timely. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get it edited and and up and out there. Uh, but you know, uh, not everything is rose, uh, better roses, right? It's uh, oh wow, um, and well, I, what you offered, I think, is is fantastic, um, and what you've shared here, I I've loved getting to chat with you today. It's been a long time. Um, yeah, I miss you, Larry. I used to bump into you at ITG conferences. I but... know. Well, and you saved our bacon with the the trumpet ensemble a couple of years ago in Hershey. Uh, oh, when, that's when, right. I sat in with you guys. That yeah, was fun. one of my jerky trumpet players uh, <laughs> backed out of. Uh, so, just so my my listeners know that uh, you know, uh, one of my students backed out of uh, ITG, and Bob White came and saved the day. Uh, rehearsed, <laughs> rehearsed and sat in with us for a prelude ensemble. So, thank you, Bob, for doing that. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, hey, I'm going to tell you. Um, <laughs> before I came up here to do this interview, um, my my 12 year old downstairs, uh, I said, "Hey, I'm going to go do an interview." And he goes, "How long is it going to take?" I said, oh, "About an hour." He goes, "You can talk about trumpet for an hour." <laughs> and I said, "Well, probably. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe a little longer." <laughs> Seems to have happened. Yeah. So. Man, well, anyway, hey, uh, well, hopefully we got into some other topics, too. Yeah. yeah well, and, you know, it's funny. Uh, once again, we managed to not talk about any kind of gear uh, or yes. equipment. So and, and that's just fine by me. Uh, Absolutely. So, <laughs> hey, I, I well, really it's a pleasure appreciate... to talk to you. Larry. Yeah, yeah, likewise. I really appreciate it. Likewise. I, I've always admired your playing. And uh, likewise. And, yeah. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at some point and best wishes for another another good year at Western. Hope things go well for you. You too, Larry. Same thing for U of I and for the Owensboro Symphony. Say hi to those people for me. I will. Thanks very much. Great to talk to you, man. All right. Take care. All right. See ya. Bye. Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here, and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you too can be a supporter. Check out how 
at www.patreon.com slash studio hfl and one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes merchandise and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link thanks again for listening and i hope you come back for more great interviews <laughs>